0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Kennel, one of the co-hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be venturing a little bit uh, to the westerly direction to talk to Nathaniel Isaacson, author of Celestial Empire, The Emergence of Chinese Science Fiction. This book examines the establishment of science fiction as a genre in China from about 1904 to 1934. That period of Chinese history is particularly fraught as China was dominated and outright colonized by first European nations and then Japan. Celestial Empire reveals how China's insecure position was processed through science fiction while also delving into recurring tropes like the sick body and the role played by science in science fiction. Key Chinese authors like Lu Xun and Wu Jaren are lined up beside lesser known works like Lao She's City of Cats for a wide ranging and really fascinating uh, and exciting examination of early Chinese science fiction. Nathaniel Isaacson, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm a professor, or, uh, not a professor quite yet, I'm an associate professor of modern Chinese literature and cultural studies at North Carolina State University. Um, I'm also the head of the Chinese language program here at NC State. Um, and my research is on uh, Chinese science fiction, as well as the history of Chinese science, um, China's relationship to technology and representations of technology uh, in, in various um, cultural Uh, settings, including visual culture, cinema, and the like.
1: And that really sort of comes through, I think, in the book itself, um, which may already be the answer to my next question, which is, how did you get interested in writing a book about Chinese science fiction?
0: Um there is kind of a long and interesting story there and I I hope it can be the sort of thing that um encourages people not to be too afraid of failure. Um this started out as a dissertation project when I was at UCLA um and I started at UCLA in 2005 and it must have been uh around 2005 or 2006 that I took a course um on late Qing fiction with Theodore Huters. Um and at that time he was working on his second to most recent book, uh, bringing, chi- bringing the World Home. Um, and, and in the process of working on that book, he had us doing a lot of reading that he was doing at the same time, a uh, number of late Qing novels. And one of those novels happened to be Wu uh, Jianren's Xin Shi Ji, The New Story of the Stone, which is a quote unquote sequel of The Story of the Stone, um, also known as Dream of, Dream of the Red Chamber. Um, But anyway, in working on this class and on these late Qing novels, I I think um, as an early early PhD student, um, to be totally honest, I had a really hard time reading all of them. Um, And even more so, I had a really hard time figuring out how I could say something that someone who was at sort of the peak of his career and the peak of his sinological abilities wasn't saying about the various novels that we read in the book that he had coming out right around that time. Um, And to be honest, I sort of froze. Um, And so I ended up with an incomplete in that class uh, that eventually rolled over into an F and stayed an F for a year or two. Um, And in the course of that time, I finally came upon the idea that the only thing uh, Ted Huters hadn't said about the new story of the stone was something that was sort of very obvious out there about it, which was that at least half of it, if not all of it, was indeed a science fiction novel. Um, he talked about it in all kinds of other ways um, and very eruditely. Um, and so that that sort of moment of failure ended up leading to me uh, writing a paper on Chinese SF, Um, And sort of at the same time, on kind of a lark, I started wondering um, what else was out there in in terms of science fiction from China. Um, and, And, you know, just kind of an evening, a Friday night or something sitting on the couch, I ended up searching around for like, uh, kind of retro posters that might have anything to do with science fiction in China and discovering that sci- China there actually was uh, a sci-fi magazine from China called Kehuan um Science Fiction World um, and sort of just uh, in in going through that, writing the paper digging around um, I found what I thought at the time would be just enough to write a dissertation without having to make any decisions at all <laughs> Uh, um, by, by which I mean, you know, I was like, okay, I can do, I can come up with what I thought would be like 10 chapters and I could cover the whole 20th century. Um, and it it really sort of mushroomed from there. Um, and since writing the book, it's the, the field of Chinese sci-fi has mushroomed as has a production of Chinese science fiction, which was really a surprise to me. Um, when I first started doing it, a lot of people would say, um, even scholars of Chinese literature would say, oh, China has science fiction. Um, and I, I think it's almost hard to imagine that being a question nowadays, um, considering that in even in the last few months in English, there have been three or four different edited volumes of translations of Chinese sci-fi. Uh, so it's a much different world we're in now than we were in in like 2006. And
1: that's one of the things I really like uh, in particular about your book, because you know I enjoy science fiction um, and I I heard uh, about all of these these new translations of Chinese science fiction novels and it seemed like everything that I heard about being translated had been published I don't know within the past 20 years
0: um yeah I, I'd say that's probably true um, I mean I, I think I'm really have benefited from from, from some very fortunate timing um, and some of that I've only realized uh, I was benefiting from, I think around, uh, maybe 2010 or so, um, all of a sudden all kinds of other people were interested in working on Chinese science fiction as well. And were sort of in the process of quote unquote, discovering it, um, which I guess, you know, is, is really more properly should be framed as rediscovering it or something like that. Um, but it, it turned out that there were a lot of there was just a way where all of a sudden people's attention was turned towards Chinese science fiction. Um, and so I, I, you know, um, I like to think that I'm responsible for a lot of this. Uh, but I think the real honest truth is just that there were, um, quite a few other people and, and really, to be honest, better scholars who were looking at this at the same time. And I've, I've managed to ride that wave. Um, so yeah, there, there are, um, just tons of translations coming out. I, I think um, I've really tried to keep myself up on the field by um, reading everything I could. And and in the last two years or so, it's gotten to where it's almost impossible to keep track of all that's out there.
1: Mm. The problems of having a wealth of research material, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, as I said, not anticipated at the beginning.
1: Which, I mean, it's it's lovely that you say that, and it's a very humble thing to say, but Really, you've, you've made this very strong argument that Chinese science fiction didn't just pop up 20 years ago. It has this uh, more than a century long history. Um, and in fact, the genre in China, um, you, know, you argue very well that it's uh, tied quite closely to imperialism. Um, and could you just talk a, tell us a little bit about that and how that connection between science fiction and imperialism appears in Chinese science fiction during this period?
0: Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as, as this was coming together as a dissertation and then as a book, I I think, um, what happened was it started to take shape as a genre study. Um, and in order to engage in a genre study, I think I had to have a very clear definition, um, uh, and a very narrow definition of what science fiction was. And I ended up coming across um, especially the work of Patricia Kerslake on, on sci-fi and empire and on John Re- uh, John Reeder's work on the history of colonialism and the emergence of science fiction. And that seemed um, really important for me in understanding science fiction at large and the relationship between sci-fi and empire, sci-fi and colonialism, um, and kind of realizing uh, that that really is kind of a core of the genre, or at least I would say that um, to me, that's one of the, the key features of the genre is the presence of empire and colony, um, especially, you know, around the turn of the 20th century, um, during kind of the height uh, of the age of European empire. Um, you know, that's that's in kind of a global sense, I think, in a more local sense in terms of East Asia or especially in terms of China um colonialism imperialism were very pressing concerns right as you mentioned in your introduction um, this is the this is the treaty era um, china is kind of you know my book is situated uh roughly 60 years past the opium war or wars um right in the wake of the sino-japanese war um and japan's 21 demands um, end up coming up in 1915 during World War II. And Japan is, is sort of de facto taking control of China as much as they can. Um, and empire is a really uh, looming concern. A kind of um, interesting little factoid I learned about the 21 Demands is that the paper that that was printed on had uh, the watermark was of a dreadnought, a Japanese warship. Um, and so it, it sort of it shows how I think explicitly, you know, the, the question of empire was there and how that was tied to questions of um, science and technology and what kind of toys various countries had and, and you know, being able to demonstrate that in um, not so subtle ways as Japan expanded its own empire. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, Chinese authors were were very keenly aware of this, um, being that they're at sort of the spear point of empire. Um, I, I think more broadly, uh, also in China, you know, fiction was seen as a very important um, vehicle for communicating ideas of the nation state. Um, and in sort of a, an Andersonian sense, there was this idea that uh, the nation um, was constructed out of fiction. Right. And and so sci fi um, tied into a whole set of concerns um, about uh, idea regarding ideas about where China was in the world, where China was as uh, itself potentially an empire or as a nation state, um, where China was in relation to science, how science could be popularized, etc. And
1: we see this, um, perhaps that is the, the connection um, where you write about uh, Lu Xun who I knew as a, you know, a canonical author of modern Chinese literature. I think you say in the books something to the effect of he's seen as the godfather of modern Chinese literature or something like that. Um, But I was really surprised to hear that he also became involved with science fiction. Um, Is it that sort of relationship between science and imperialism that drew him to the genre? Um, I
0: I think so. Um, I, I think, uh, I guess I have to admit to another kind of scholarly shortcoming, which is for me, it's it's almost sometimes hard to imagine Lu Xun as the dynamic person that he really was, and as someone who's changing over time, um, because we end up canonizing him in certain ways, and I think associating him with certain texts, especially, um, I think almost anyone who has a degree in East Asian studies or some similar field has has. Um, had to read Diary of a Madman and the preface to A Call to Arms, right? And those are sort of the two um, works by Lushrin that I absolutely make sure that my students have to have read um, by the time they've come out of almost any class that I have. I really want them to get those two things. And I think we end up sort of tying him down in a lot of ways to those two texts, Um but you know he he spent um, quite a bit of time in Japan, um, and he was keenly interested in science um, as well. After all, um, you know the beginning of his career was uh, was uh, one that was looking to be a career in medicine. Um, and, and so of course that, that led him into being very interested in science. Um, I think the atmosphere in Japan as well at, at sort of, you know, Japan at the end of the Meiji era, era um, is a place where translation of Western science and its relationship to the novel, um, is a topic of major concern to a lot of people. And and he clearly picked up on that. um, I think there's sort of a less clear boundary for Lu Xun and for a lot of Meiji authors as well, right? Between um, what is science, what is science fiction, and what is the role of fiction um, in depicting the world as it really is and potentially in changing the world into um, something else that it that it potentially could be. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean... It, it's also easy to forget how how uh, the collected works of Lu Xun is this huge, you know, multi-volume. Depends on on what the publisher is set, um, and he's also got this mat, this massive um, collected, uh, a massive collection of the translated works of Lu Xun is also out there, right? So he was um, really deeply involved in all kinds of different uh, literary endeavors, um, and he's he's a very dynamic, eclectic figure.
1: That particularly came out for me. Um... I hadn't realized that he was uh, or he had at one point studied medicine um, and in Japan at that time period, which immediately made me think of the Japanese author Mori Ogai, who was also a physician, in fact. And Ogai went very realist in his fiction. But then, as you discuss uh, Lu Shun's work, he he really is truly experimental and wide ranging uh, over time, isn't he? Um, and he also was quite involved in um, translation, I
0: think. Yeah, yeah, he was. Um, and, and of course, he ends up translating Jules Verne. Um, I mean, I think he's a, experimental at times. I think he's very sm- a similar figure to Moriogai in a lot of ways at other times. Um, and I think there, are, it, it's interesting to me how um, kind of this Meiji atmosphere of the idea that, that realism is this uh, sort of a new thing that's out there. Um, and authors decide that they needed to depict the world as it really was, um, and what did that mean to different people? And so, I think for for Moriogai, this his idea of realism comports very much with um, what I think my idea of realism also is—that um, it's it's uh, an objective depiction of the world that's out there. Um, I think for some other Japanese authors, it seems like. Uh, coming upon realism and deciding I need to depict the world as it really is, for some reason ended up being interpreted as a need um, to depict their own depraved interiority as it really was. And it kind of seems to lead into this stream of the Japanese eye novel. Um, and, and so I don't, you know, that's kind of outside of my field. I don't know exactly how how you get there, but um, it's interesting that you start out with this core that I think is picked up in both China China, and japan and people end up taking it in very different directions um and and yeah as we were saying earlier you know what lu shun is known for i think um i i guess i guess it's easy to lose the way we canonize lu Lu shun it's easy to lose track of how experimental diary of a madman really was right um because there's this way of interpreting that of saying well this is this depiction of um the problems with Chinese society around the turn of the 20th century. And so we almost wanna say that that's a form of realism um, when really there's not too much, I guess, in the end that's that's all that realistic about Diary of a Madman.
1: And just taking that, uh, that sort of uh, track a little further uh, in the sense of um, Chinese authors drawing on um, Japanese training or uh, materials, um, I was really interested in Shunanshi uh, Shu's uh, new tales of Mister Bragadocio. Uh
0: oh, Shuniansa. Yeah. Sorry.
1: Um, what was he doing? Because that is a a direct um, sequel, is it not? How is he playing with the source material there?
0: Yeah, um, so let, let me make sure I, I try to get this right, um, because it gets uh, really complicated and um, it's one of my own little personal obsessions, or I think almost any text that I'm really fascinated with is some sort of version or iteration of this. Um, so so New Tales of ba- Mr. Bragadocio, Xin Fa Lo Xian Sheng Tan, is a sequel to a Chinese translation of a Japanese translation, of the German Baron von Munchausen stories. Um, And and so the thing that I'm obsessed with there is kind of the idea, and and I guess, Amanda, you're pretty interested in too with with your interest in Alice in Wonderland, um, is the idea of uh, reiterations of adaptations, of adaptations, and it's kind of um, adaptation and fan fiction all the way down. Right. Um, but yeah, really fascinating whimsical story uh, about a guy who is is concerned about the state of China at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and and the kind of TLDR on it is that his um, his soul and his body split apart and he ends up traveling all over uh, the solar system, finally comes back, uh, learns about mesmerism, starts up a school for mesmerism kind of kills the global economy because of that and ends up having to go into hiding um, because he's obviated all these various um, trappings of modernity that that run the global economy.
1: It is fascinating to think about. I mean, it, it does seem very Baron von Munchausen, does it not? That uh, Mr. Bragadocio figures out how the brain, how, I don't know how to put it, how to use the brain's electricity, electricity to basically be a a telegraph and an energy source and like everything all in one. And suddenly the earth is uh, society as we know it is destroyed. Yeah. He just keeps going on his merry way, doesn't he?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great story and it's a rabbit hole that I had to avoid for writing the book um, in terms of looking at mesmerism and hypnotism. Um, that I've been able to get into a little bit uh, since I've finished writing the book and gotten it actually published. Um, I think there's this fascinating aspect there of this potential for alternate Asian modernities. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, there's a book called um, Saimin Jutsu no Nihon Kindai. I think, right? About the the history of mesmerism in Japan. Um, and there's kind of this parallel history in China as well, where people saw mesmerism and spiritism and some of that that's going on in, in New Tales of Mr. Bragadocio, um, and thought uh, that there was something there that was sort of parallel to, but... Um, superior to uh, Western science and maybe also uniquely compatible to East Asian sensibilities. Um, And so there was just this massive fad um, and and tomes and tomes uh, circulating around Japan and China, also around the turn of the 20th century about mesmerism. Um, So one of the things I've been doing recently is translating an article uh, written by a scholar who's at Tsinghua University, on. In part on the history of mesmerism in China, um, and I, I think uh, one of the things that's unfortunately not in my book, but makes really for fascinating reading in in both the context of Japan and China, is the history of pseudoscience um, in around that time um, and things that uh, I, I mean, you know one strain of mesmerism comes into contemporary hypnotism, right? And is this sort of accepted psychological practice, yeah, um, psychiatric psychological practice nowadays. Um, and other strains of this end up just being, you know, um, complete balderdash, right? Uh, but, but really fascinating episode in there in terms of that interest in, in mesmerism as sort of an alternative science, um, and seeing where they, they pick that up and run with it in a uh, really fun way, right? I, I think that's one of the more fun stories that I have a reading of in, in the book.
1: Well, I have to admit, I, I rather liked your reading of um, Lao Tzu's Cat Country.
0: Um, that's good to hear. It's kind of a, it's kind of a depressing novel, I think. Um, r- really, yeah, not a very positive outlook on, on China's potential uh, coming there out of the 1930s.
1: That I did notice that was sort of a um, a tendency in general across some of the novels uh, or across the the science fiction that you dealt with. And even when there was a utopia, the the author's conclusion did not seem to be very upbeat. Uh, in
0: these yeah, um, I, I think there's a really a pervasive sense of cultural crisis, um, and and I have a hard time sort of pulling out um, two questions that I have there that are ongoing. Um, One that I bring up a lot in the book is the idea that that that's the atmosphere at the time, um, was a sense that China probably wouldn't be able to overcome that cultural crisis and therefore a lot of these narratives um, that I'm looking at, the attempt to overcome those various crises um, and to do the, to do so in kind of fictional form or in science fictional form um, ends up kind of collapsing, right? The novels either aren't completed or, or they end with someone having to go into hiding because they're chased off by a mob uh, or it turns out that it was all a dream and the dream kind of collapses. There are these various uh, forms of collapse that occur. Um, and I do think one explanation is the sense um, just at the time that that was how dire the crisis was that China was facing. Um, But also I think there's this, uh, there's a strange way of, of the historical moment we're in conditioning how we're able to see those moments right um, and so on the other side now of the covid crisis um, and of China maybe we're not on the other side of it but um, hopefully almost on the other side of it um, and of China having even in the last years since I started writing you know the dissertation which would eventually become the book I think uh, China's potential for being a techno scientific, uh, global leader, technoscientific em- empire, seems um, seems to have always been there in a certain way that we might not have seen ten years ago, right? And so that that sense of crisis, I think, now in 2022, seems a little more overblown than it did even you know even ten years back. As I was working on the novel, where you're you're kind of having a hard time to imagine. Um, China in the position in the world that they are today. Um, and, and so, you know, these novels also have things like China hosting um, World Expos or China hosting the Olympics. Um, and I, I think for those authors in the early 20th century, that was kind of hard to imagine China pulling that off. And even in the early 21st century, it, it was still a little bit harder to imagine that happening. Um, and now uh, it, it seems to be projected as sort of historical teleology. Like, of course, this is where China would have ended up in the 21st century. How could it have been anything other?
1: It does sort of seem um, almost to be telegraphed uh, in your book when you talk about how some of these early science fiction authors uh, were adapting or uh, trying to make historical Chinese uh, literary works or uh, philosophies uh, meet the challenges of the modern age through their science fiction. Yeah,
0: um, I, I think that's something that they really struggled with um, on, on both kind of a level of um, tropes or literary figures, um, and on the actual, the, in the sense of the language that they were going to use. Um, and so returning to Lu Xun, you know, he says um, that in, in his introduction to his translation of uh, Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon, he says, I had wanted to translate this into the vernacular language, but I just couldn't do it. I had to translate it into, into Wen Yanwen, into the classical language. Um, and so I think Lu Xun depicts himself as someone who's struggling um, to produce a new language that's adequate for communicating ideas about science and technology. Um, and a lot of these authors are kind of fighting with that idea that that they needed a vernacular language and they couldn't quite get a grasp on it. Um, and I, I think as my opinion of this has evolved over time, I've begun to, s- to see or to sort of reconsider the power of um. China's deeper, uh, longer classical language tradition. And I think that a lot of those authors really weren't giving themselves enough credit, uh, and they weren't giving the language enough credit. Um, it's kind of interesting that, that they have this, you know, 2000 year long well, um, of, of various, uh, uh, linguistic allusions um, and, and forms that they can draw upon. Um, And they're not seeing, they're not really seeing the value in that. And I I think, um, you know, Lu Lu Xun is kind of saying, well, you know, this is just all the language I had. Um, And as time goes on, I'm really starting to feel like, well, this, you know, the classical language maybe is the better language for this. It's the language of Buddhism. Um, it's the language of the I Ching. It's the language of Taoism. Um, and, and so if you compare that to English, which is by, you know, by comparison is a much younger language, there's actually a, a much richer tradition that, you, that they had there to draw upon. Um, and they're potentially just not seeing the, the, the value in that.
1: It really was a very um, how to put it uh, a, a time period in a great deal of flux, where you know governments are the, the form of government is changing, but even down to the words that the authors are using, and and they're experts with words, but they're they're stuck on which ones to use. It sounds like, and so they they end up taking us to places like the moon, um, and you mentioned um, Lucian's uh, translation of Burns' uh, uh, story. But, uh, you also wrote about, um, Wong Jung uh, Tales of the Moon Colony, uh, which, you know, I thought it reminded me, uh, in your telling of, uh, Gulliver's Travels, actually, where in both cases you have this alien protagonist going on an international journey. Um, and Gulliver's Travels reveals a lot about English society of the time, or really the author is criticizing English society at the time. Um, what can we learn about China from Tales of the Moon Colony?
0: Um, yeah, I, I think uh, that's a really interesting comparison that I hadn't uh, necessarily thought of before, but it, it's a v- both interesting and apt. Um, one of the most interesting things about Tales of the Moon Colony... Um, or maybe I can come up with two offhand. Uh, one is that they never really end up on the moon. We have kind of some dream sequences of the moon, um, but as I was saying before, you know, a lot of these narratives uh, seem to kind of fall apart before they can really get to the places they were promising to get us to. Um, the other thing is that as a um, an allegory for the Chinese nation state, um, there's this figure in there, Long Menghua. Um, who, who is basically uh, the sick man of Asia, right? And he actually spends, um, if I'm remembering correctly, quite a bit of the novel in a coma. Um, and there, there's this really interesting scene where this, this doctor goes in and sort of opens him up and he says, well, you know, look, just look at all his internal organs. He's kind of diseased. And the cause of the disease basically is traditional Chinese culture. Um, and in particular, there's, there's uh, an essay format called the Bagu Wen, Um, That's kind of notoriously hard to write in for the Chinese examination system. And he says, you know, just look at this guy, look at his heart. You can see that a lot of his problem is he's been trained to write in the bagu and format. Um, And luckily, you know, they have these, these like medicinal liquids, they kind of clean him out with and seal him back up. Um, and he's ready to go, uh, but yeah. For and and a lot of the novel takes place. They're sort of wandering around Southeast Asia. Um, they make their way all to all the way to South Africa, um, but quite a bit of it is focused on the idea of um, the weakness of of the Chinese state. Uh, and, and so, it is interesting how that allegory ends up um, appearing even as they travel all over the place in a hot air balloon and
1: a hot air balloon. I mean, it doesn't seem science fictional to us today, but it was a very new technology and, and its reach was uh, maybe stretched a bit in uh, stories like that one. Um, which kind of reminds me uh, of something you said earlier, which is that science fiction is really um, also very closely related to science uh, in this time period. And you wrote a bit about science and um, journalism and journalism. Uh, this genre, I feel like it's almost a, a semi-science fiction genre. The the keshuexiaoping, ah, uh, uh,
0: Keshue Xiaopin. yes, yeah, um, um, yeah. So Xiaopin ends up being one of the things that comes along, um, sort of after the late Qing, um, moving into the Republican era, and then and then even during the Mao era, when when uh, more fanciful or sort of um, imaginative utopian sci-fi uh, would would have been discouraged. Um, there are a lot of other forms that you see emerge um, that are basically popular science uh, genres that that are accepted. And, and xiaopin um this idea of like the science essay, um, is one of them. And and I mean, I think yeah, it's very interesting the ways that um, fictional settings um, and uh, kind of a fictional series of events will be used to communicate very real ideas about science um, in in these various uh, other kind of like sub-genres that emerge after that. I think another thing that I didn't really get into quite so much um, in the book, or only a tiny bit in the book, uh, is kind of the journey, I would say, um, from real science to what I call fictional science, and then into eventually science fiction. So you'd have um, some scientific discovery very often in in the Western world, and that's reported in the news and often kind of sensationalized even in in English language reports, right? And that sort of makes its way into Chinese and, and into Japanese in translation. And it gets kind of, there's this gradual accretion um of the fictional aspect of it um and it's phrased in sort of local chinese terms it's often phrased um as we were just saying, in terms of the classical Chinese language as a way to explain, you know, this new scientific insight or new scientific breakthrough. Um, And eventually, uh, really often in some of these episodes, like this episode I was talking about um, in Tales of the Moon Colony with opening up the guy's chest and kind of performing open heart surgery or whatever with these various medicinal liquids uh, or in the thing uh, like with New Tales of Mr. Braggadocio and the idea of mesmerism. Um, you have these kind of real scientific discoveries or um, hopes for real scientific discoveries that get translated um, and then sort of gradually adopted and gradually fictionalized until those things become science fiction. Um, and so there, there are other people who are doing research on some of the same ground that I cover who've shown how uh, if, if you dig around long enough, you're likely to find a lot of these episodes, uh, like this, this heart-washing episode showing up, um, in Chinese newspapers and then kind of making its way gradually morphing into the very fictional thing we see aboard the hot air balloon, um, with this imaginary surgery going on.
1: So there is this, this very close tie between science fact fictionalized perhaps and science fiction in China.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think I left that out. So thanks. For, yeah. There's, there's like science fact. Um, and then you have fictional science and then eventually science fiction. Right. And, and um, yeah, you can very often draw a line um, through seeing sort of the textual steps that these things take to get there.
1: So if there, if there are these, these connections between uh, sort of science, uh, scientific discoveries or technological discoveries, and then science fiction. Is this just showing up in uh, prose literature, or is it showing up in other media as well?
0: Um, I, 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 I mean how would I answer that? I guess I would, I would say, yeah, I, uh, to me, I, I, think that, um, you see ideas about science, um, and how, how do you do science show up in all kinds of amazing places, right? Um, in visual culture, um, in people's relation to tech relationship to technology and the ways people talk about technology. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's really, it's really all over the place. Um, de- depending where where you look for it, and and I think that's one of the things I hoped um, that the book would do is well. I give you know as I said a pretty narrow definition of science fiction based on this question of um, orientalism and empire, and of whether or not it's possible to adopt um, what is a uh, you know uh, uh, what is pretty clearly a, a, an orientalistic um and an imperialistic genre, most of the time, you know, these authors are struggling with whether they can adopt that genre for the purpose of fighting back against empire. Um, But I think the other thing I had really hoped the book would do was open us up to kind of seeing uh, more broadly the ways that discourses about science um, and thinking about science and kind of um, visualizing science or figuring science in, in other forms of cultural production um, where does that pop up? How does it pop up? What does it show us about China's relationship to science and technology? Um, it, you know, that's, that's what I kind of hope one of the long-term impacts of the book might be.
1: And that's one of the reasons, I mean, it certainly worked that way for me, but that's one of the reasons I think that I did um, like your discussion of cat country so much, because as you describe it in the book, there is this period where science fiction doesn't tend to be published quite so much, if at all, um, because of uh, this this turn, as you said, away from utopianism and toward this uh, this sort of uh, pictorial journalism and the science sketches. And then Cat Country comes out, and it's not pretending to be uh, any kind of factual, <laughs> is the impression that I got. It, it seems to be a, a pretty solid return to science fiction, which makes me wonder what prompted cat country to, to come out, this, this return, however brief, of science fiction full-blown in a period where there wasn't as much?
0: Um, I can't say for sure. I mean, you know, in the book, I argue that that has a lot to do with, with Lao Shu's disappointment um, with Republican China at the time um, and his sort of sense of political despair. Um, I I think... Uh, potentially we could also explain that in terms of needing to to allegorize um, his political misgivings in a way that there' there's sort of plausible deniability um but but that's actually a really interesting question you know as to um and I, I guess it's kind of, um, it, it lead I can only really speculate on it. Um, and, and I guess I sort of have two different, I have two different answers about it. So one is I find, again, there's this really interesting division at some point in around the turn of the 20th century where both Japanese and Chinese authors, as I was saying, have decided realism is the thing and I need to depict the world as it really is. Um, and I was kind of joking that you have all these Japanese authors who say, okay, realism, the I novel." Um, and it's, it's about this depraved interiority. And I think, I think a lot of um, Chinese authors, um, even, even before the socialist era and before socialist realism made this derogure, right. Uh, people end up turning towards basically um, realism as social realism. So I needed to depict the world the way it really is. Um, and, and I think, Cat Country sort of allegorizes that on Mars. Um, but in, in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of readings of Cat Country talk about how um, it is just an allegory for China's crisis during the during the Republican era. Um, and so in that sense, it's a very realistic novel. Um, the other answer I have, <coughs> I think, is that uh, and I, I unfortunately haven't had the t- chance to be back. To China, obviously, in the last three years, Um, the thing the thing that we're discovering um, about that period of time and about the quantity of sci fi that was actually out there at the time is that there was indeed much more than had been identified um, a decade ago. Um, so the last time I was in China in 2018, I was talking to some other, uh, some PhD students of Chinese science fiction, and, and they were using the word, uh, like being excavated, basically to say that we've gone back and we've rediscovered these other works of Chinese sci-fi that are out there. Um, and so I think at this point in time, depending who you'd ask, you'd probably find other works of science fiction um, I think broadening that definition, too, to talk about, to sort of rethink what is science fiction really um, gives us a lot of things like, you know, newspaper reportage about um, things like mesmerism, right? Which with with a reading read in a little bit different light, that really is a form of science fiction, or at least as we've been talking about, it's fictional science. Um, you also have a lot of newspaper reportage. You know, about things like advances in the medical sciences, um, which are presented in these very fantastic and often kind of fictionalized ways. Um, and and a lot of that was sort of pseudoscience, even when it was originally produced in English. Um, so I think that that uh, on the one hand, we're now managing to identify more stuff that was out there and just no one had ever really noticed or paid attention to prior to. Um, sort of the rediscovery of Chinese science fiction. Uh, and I think the other thing that that is there that we can do is to kind of think about how science fiction or science fictional um, tropes, ways of seeing the world function within, you know, quote unquote, hard science or science reportage uh, more broadly from that time period.
1: It's certainly, um, you know, you, I definitely got the sense from your book that Chinese science fiction in the period is this very vibrant, very... Um, how to put it, uh, this very vibrant participant in a global conversation of science fiction um, with the, the constant thinking about, you know, uh, a French author like Verne translated into English, into Japanese, and then into Chinese, and then someone's responding to that uh, in different ways. It was, uh, for all the, the, the stories themselves are quite, or seem to be quite depressing at times, The the very uh elite level of intellectual play with this global body of works is very impressive. Um, but we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, would you mind telling us what you're working on now?
0: Um, yeah, so I'm kind of continuing this. Um, of course I'm trying to ride the wave of the popularity of Chinese science fiction as much as I can. Um, but I'm also uh, really interested in looking at some of these ideas that I was talking about in terms of um, cultural representations of science and technology. Um, I'm also uh, really interested in the idea of the environmental humanities um, and of kind of the fetishization of development. Um, And so how, how do discourses of science discourses regarding technology and the discourse of development figure into the history of Chinese um, literature and visual culture. Um, what that has me working on is a book project called moving the people, the aesthetics of mass transit in modern China. Um, and basically I use the figure of the train, um, and, or, you know, various other, uh, kind of things that move along tracks, uh, as a way of trying to get into those very questions of how, how is technology, um, Visualized how how do people talk about science? Um, how do people use uh, the train? Of course, is a pretty obvious uh, um, avenue for talking about how do we depict uh, notions of progress, right, or moving forward? Um, and so that's that's one of the things that I'm interested in working on. Um, fascinating. Right now, mm-hmm. thank you.
1: Yeah, and I can I can see how it grew out of uh, celestial empire, and yet it seems at the same time. Uh, like a very distinct uh, new project that I look forward to reading when it's complete.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I I like to call this stuff sci-fi adjacent.
1: (laughs) All right. Thank you very much for speaking with us. And I hope you have a good afternoon.
0: Yeah, you too, Amanda. Thank you.